we've been recording all of these, but we've been recording these in and Adam take no offense, the jankiest possible way. I mean, Adam actually did like had a whatever a nine part tweet thread describing what he was doing to record these things. Um, because my view is. Oh, how how is oh, it? sorry. How'd it go? Yeah, I'm I'm good. The, I actually started. I was able to start recording on my BlueStacks rig before I was able to get in here <laughs> properly. So, I mean, it just sounds like something you use for Bitcoin mining. I mean, <laughs> pro- it's really close. <laughs> I know. The so we had this like this great space last week with 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 Matt, and then we had this. Uh, we realized that we had actually. Or Adam, afterwards, you must have had that horrifying, sinking feeling. Oh God. So yeah, walk us through it. What happened? Oh God. So, I mean, the what happened, I, I don't know. Is the is the short answer? But, <laughs> That's always fun. So so I get off the call, <laughs> and you know, it, it's gone an hour and a half. It was awesome. And, and Matt, I know you're here. It was terrific. And and if you haven't listened to it, you should go listen to it. And it's the it's the one of these that I have shared with my non technical friends. Um, one because I've been I've been a little embarrassed to to explain to them what our Twitter space is and that I have one and that I, that I would do it on a regular basis. But you know the the I sort of feel like the the folks for whom this content is designed uh, and designed is a is a very I've done a lot of work there. Uh, kind of find us I think like the the hundred or so two hundred who show up and then like the four hundred YouTube views. But last week I think was extremely approachable and important. Um, so get off that call. And I'm like, sweet, let's hear the recording. I got to get it up. And Zero it is, it is six seconds of just angry static. Oh, like, no. Shitting me. Uh, so I am, I'm, I mean, so at a moment of like, okay, quick time recording player, where else might you have put these bytes? <laughs> and there like, aren't that many places, right? Cause it's like a Mac and it's like an app and it's either going to like dump it all into the trash or maybe some temp file, but there was no big temp file. So anyway, uh, so well, and I, so I, Matt I'm and like, I are DMing cause I, you know, I'm breaking the news to Matt being like, uh, your, um, yeah. So the recording, um, maybe lost it. See here. And Matt's like, I'm sure it's fine. I'm sure it hasn't been like, like I'll, I'll help Adam. And he kind of just comes back. Matt, I know you came back to me a couple minutes later being like, yeah, the recording may be gone. Um, we may actually, but then it had that great ending because we, uh, asked the internet, and the internet had two delightful answers, each as surprising as the other, I felt. I don't know, Adam, how yeah. you felt. One was totally. that Twitter records all these, which I knew, but recently they were making it available to you if you downloaded all your personal information, which I also have done because this is actually the only way I've been able to get, if you have a long DM conversation where you want to you know, record that, the only way to really get this is to download all of your personal information from Twitter. There's no real API. I mean, Twitter, I love you, but how about some APIs around some of this stuff? And the, you know, all the APIs are basically turned off, so you have to download all this stuff. Have you done this, Adam? Have you downloaded all your personal information from Twitter? Never. It's fascinating. Never. I mean, it's, it, they, they, they collect a lot of information. It's very valuable. But you can only do it once every 30 days. The, because they want you to prevent you from using this as an API. The recordings are deleted after 30 days, and the recordings may take between 24 and 48 hours, but, quote, may take longer to show up. So we're like, okay, what do we do? So we're thinking, like, we're going to request the recording on Wednesday. And then meanwhile, someone is someone who, I, if you're here, God bless you, was like, actually, I think I've got a bootleg recording of this. 
Like that is great. Yeah, and they 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 just kind of showed up in my DMs and were like, "Yeah, I've got it here." Uh, I missed the first five minutes. Um, I was like, "Man, I will take it." That uh, is so great. Thank you yeah. for wearing a wire, or I don't know because people recording. I don't know whoever is recording everything about their lives. God bless you. Um, yeah. <laughs> yes, thank you, our police police state friends. Yes, absolutely. I think it's great. I would. I, well, I do feel strong. So I actually do feel strongly about that. I'm happy, and maybe this makes me a bit of an outlier. I'm happy to be recorded more or less all of the time because I view the positives of being able to amplify those conversations and people being able to consume them when at a time that is convenient for them as opposed to us is so much more valuable than the, I mean, I, don't, I feel like I don't have any privacy anyway right now. So, you know, but, <laughs> there I'm, you go. but I'm an overshare. Yeah. All right. On to the main event. Um, so I think I had seen, the, have you watched the, had you watched this talk, Adam? No. So I had not watched the talk. It, it had been in my queue. And I am so glad that you raised it to the top of the queue because it was so amazing. It was awesome. It was great. And I, I, I think I had seen, someone else had tweeted out like a screenshot of this thing. Yeah, there were some slides that floated around. And the slides uh, were juicy. I mean, they were... Yeah, yeah. These these look like these are our people. Like this is gonna be great. Like this is gonna be right up our alley. Okay. So and then Adam, I think it, we, you and I may need to uh, to confess a. Um, <laughs> you and I both have had a complicated relationship with graduate school and academia. We yeah, had, I think we, yours was more complicated than mine. Uh, in part because you, um, I think you, you, you poured, <laughs> you kind of poured your, uh, as I was contemplating grad school, you were kind of poured your own feelings of it into, you know, my cup and, <laughs> and I had to like drink it down. Wait, are, yeah, are, no, are, are, wait a minute. Are you somehow, I, you know, I was going to, you and I were going to hold I'm, hands and have an inferiority complex together, but I'm, I'm concerned that I'm you are blame, now. I'm blame thanking you. I'm you're blame thanking me. No. You're blanking me, I guess. Yeah. The, but no. so I just have, well, I think like a lot of people, a complicated relationship with academia. The I, in that I view, the, the, I viewed myself as getting a PhD as the pinnacle of intellectual achievement, and that that unwinding and realizing that that's actually not what I wanted to go do, and I could actually go into industry and go do interesting work, um, was complicated. I would say, and I actually, you know, and I still believe that I don't have a PhD yet. Sadly. Wow. Isn't that good for you? I mean, a lifelong learner. Well, uh, but because both my grandfather and my mother got PhDs very late in life. So I'm, I think I've got some like genetic mutation. Yeah. No, hey, go for it. I, I say, uh, like, we, let's do this oxide thing for a little while first, or, or maybe you can do No, that's what I'm saying. I'm applying programs. to grad school yeah. tonight, Adam. This is what I'm trying to tell you. This is what I'm leading up to. I'm, I, I, yeah, actually, I'm actually, leaving. Why, I'm going to grad school. Accepted? What he's trying to tell you, Adam, is that he's leaving. <laughs> good, good. Know. Okay, well, this is an awkward form for that, but I'm, I'm, I support <laughs> that decision. I just feel like I wanted to make sure the recording was on and I could do it. No, no, of course not. Of course, yeah, no, no. They, that's not true. Right. The none of it's true. But the what is true is that I think I, I actually I, I've always thought highly of academia, and I have wanted academia and industry to work together to help one another out. And I, for academia to get, um, to be solving problems 
that were um, interesting and relevant to industry, but not doing so in a way that was presumptuous or elitist or, and that I would say doesn't really happen. That's, that's basically. Well, well, I, you know, I think that the, uh, maybe that dovetails to, to my uh, dalliance with grad school, um, which was the two internships, the two most significant internships I had when I was an undergraduate were in the Microsoft research graphics group. And then at Sun Microsystems in the kernel team. Okay, in and the graphics group so, at Microsoft, are you not even allowed in the same elevator with PhD? I mean, don't you have to like take different? I, I just I imagine that being a very stratified society. It was. It was not. And, and in fact, really? it, as a as a first person who had just finished his sophomore year of, of college, and I gave a presentation like my third week of my internship uh, to a room full of like fifteen people, three of whom have shading algorithms named after them. It was terrifying, like terrifying and incredibly flat. Like for, and just as, as a quick vignette, uh, Jim Blinn of Blinn Fong Shading would sit around uh, at the lunch table with me and explain how he watched The Simpsons with his wife, which, which, was, which took a lot of time because they watched it twice the second time pausing it. So very, very flat. Um, and I think the, the and, and also I'd say that um, in that Microsoft Research Graphics group, there was a lot of that interplay between some of the work going on in games and Xbox and their research. And so um, I think that that kumbaya of industry and academia living side by side was, was much more realized. Well, and I would Which say I, that the of the academic domains, I think graphics has done this well. And yeah. of companies, Microsoft has done this well. So it's actually not very surprising that Microsoft graphics is probably like was pretty good. Exactly. No, exactly. So I, I, I agree. I, I think that's what the, uh, that's another part of the dichotomy for me was, you know, I had, I had a lot of interest in graphics in, as an undergrad and a lot of interest in systems. Um, and so it was sort of like industry and systems or, uh, or, or, or academia and graphics. And obviously like I, I showed up at Sun thinking, oh, I'll do this for a little while. And then uh, and then go to grad school, and it and it's been longer than a little while now. Am I about to be blamed again? Is this where? This, this... <laughs> no, no, okay. no, no. I I have, I have no regrets on that, and I think that. Um, can I get that? I mean, just like know, just routine. Can I just get that in writing? I'm just going to need that to be notarized. You, you can, but just remember, like I can cut this out of the, <laughs> of, right. of the recording. I am no, certain no he said that he would, but you know, I now I can't find it. I <laughs> yeah. yeah, I dreamed it. You have to get the that's data dump again, that's but that's you got to do it within. You got you got to wait 25 days or whatever until you get it. Yeah, so. Um, you know, I, I think that part of it was I, I saw the kind of work that we were doing at Sun being totally different than the systems work going on in academia and and just sort of felt like it was disconnected. The academic work was disconnected from, you know, pragmatic, real problems. Yeah, which it is. It, it definitely was and is, I feel. I feel systems, as it's been not good in systems. Uh, and that was what I was kind of waking up to as an undergraduate is that the academic systems that the, the more interesting systems work that was being done was being done in industry. And the, um, I did you, did you listened by any chance and only listened, not watched because they did not video it. The keynote I gave at Usenics ATC. Yes. Yes. And, <laughs> and in fact, when, uh, when Muffy was started his talk and said, you know, I can, I'm not going to be a James Mickens, but I am going to, uh, vent my anger and frustration. 
Um, I, I was wondering if, if th that was just you or if there's a whole lineage I of had the, frustration. Types. I had the same question. So uh, Usenix invited me back to give their opening, the opening keynote at ATC, but with no vetting of me and no guidance about what they wanted me to speak about. In particular, they're like, oh, but do you want me? What would you like me to speak on? They're like, you can speak on whatever you want. I'm like, this person has never seen me talk. Like, that is it, 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 way, way too much light. It, it's like a, a Festivus airing of grievances. I, well, the, I don't think that that's what they realized they were signing themselves up for. In particular, what I, what I ended up talking about, which I think is getting us to, to Timothy's piece, it, the, uh, he alludes to a little bit, oh, I don't think we need to necessarily fix it on, but is the problem in academic systems. And in particular, the problem with the, the, the fact that we use in computer science, we unfortunately use conferences as the publishing vector and not journals. And it leads to lots and lots and lots of perverse incentives. Um, it, it does not yield good results. And this is not a controversial opinion. Like I think everyone kind of knows this, but um, nobody knows how to change. And, and the origins of this was that computer science was moving too quickly for journals. That unlike, you know, biology and chemistry and so on, like we are moving really fast. So we can't be in a journal it, because by the time it's in a journal, it's obsolete. And so we need to publish in conferences. And Adam, have you ever talked to like other scientists about this? No, not really. Oh man, it's like explaining Twitter spaces to your friends where you're having to repeat it four <laughs> different times and they're blaming you. They're like, no, you are misunderstanding. I'm like, no, I'm not misunderstanding. I know. It's like, no, but what you're saying is bonkers. Like that you're saying that you publish in the conferences. That's not what a conference is. I'm like, yeah, no, I know. I know. I know. I know. You know you're not mad at me. You're, you're, and so and he gets that a little bit, but I, but I think the thing that is, and he definitely picks on Ausdy for, and for good reason. But the, the thing that he gets to that I thought was way more interesting, obviously, is talking about what the modern operating system does and should look like. So, so you saw this for the first time. And Dan, I know, I, I think uh, either I turned you onto this or you turned me onto this. I can't, I, can't, I can't lose track, but I know you saw this as well. Yeah, um, yeah you, you, you um, pointed me at it. So not the other way around. And... Um, I mean, so what do you think? I thought it was like great. I thought it was exciting, invigorating, interesting, very forward-looking, and it had a with some spice to it. I like the fact that he was kind of calling some things out in terms of calling out. I mean, I've got some other comments too. Things he gets slightly wrong, or things that I'd like to add to. But um, what did you think overall? Well, yeah, first I loved it, and I thought that one of the most insightful pieces was was that Ozdi was intended to be about the design and implementation of operating systems. And that he's not denying that there are operating systems that, that of which Linux is a component on you know, modern systems, but rather that it is accreted and not designed. And I thought that was, was such a, a great point uh, to, to kind of consider the design of the holistic system rather than just viewing parts as static and then working around them like, you know, like, as though they are. Uh, impossible to change. I, you, yeah, I, I had the same feeling, and his word choice was just beautiful. If you recall, his word choice was, and he his timing is very good. About the way he, he says, you know, these were not designed; they congealed. And I'm like, <laughs> that's right, that's man, right. why is congeal not in the rotation for me? I feel that that was, you know, game respects game on that one. I just thought that was a great metaphor. I, I, it has like the grease, the cooling grease that. Just feels so. 
it just nails it, I feel, because it did, it, it, it did congeal. Um, it was not, you would not design it this way. Absolutely. Dan, what do you think? If you're there, Dan. Dan is Sorry, I muted myself. Can you hear me now? We can, yeah, yeah. I totally know how technology works, and therefore I'm qualified to comment on the. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> Perfect. Um, Could you please build me a computer, sir? Yeah, right. Exactly. Um, I thought that the content was absolutely on point. And I, I, I think uh, so. I shared this uh, talk with uh, some members of the Unix Heritage Society mailing list. And some of the some of the feedback I got from those folks was actually quite insightful. Um, one person said, well, OK, what's taking them so long to get there? Um, a lot of other people said, yeah, that's that's great. But, you know, like, who cares about the actual operating system? You know, like, what about sort of distributed systems? Like, our, our world is very different than it was a while ago. Now, I, I, I think that we care. <laughs> it's yeah, right. what I'm saying. Like, microservices have to run on some computer somewhere at some point, you know, and being like, you know, Kubernetes is great or whatever the case may be. But you know, that does not drive the interrupt controller or the Ethernet or, you know, the storage device or, or you know, provide a process abstraction or whatever. So I, I thought the content was absolutely on point. It reminded me very much of Rob Pike's talk from 2000, where he talked about system software research as irrelevant in the sense of being a, a polemic for the systems community. But I, I, yeah. I, I know you guys have some feels about that. I actually kind of hear that. Yeah, no, I think the, the, the um, yeah, like I can, I can see uh, Kluo unmuting himself. The, 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 um, the polemic, I feel it definitely had, I, I mean, I like that it was provocative the way the polemic was. The thing I, I view fundam as fundamentally different from Pike's polemic, Pike's polemic felt kind of nihilist to me. And like, it was exhausting. <laughs> and I, the thing I liked about and this is like hard to dial up, but I admire it. Roscoe has got like indignation, but with a twinkle in his eye and a look to the future. So it feels much more uplifting than the polemic. The polemic, the Rob Pike's polemic is just like, all right, so let's just all like walk in the traffic. Um, and without, so, without, I think some of the, and I think the other frustration, Josh, I mean, I, I, obviously love your perspective on this. I think the other frustration of the polemic is it felt like it ignored some of the work that had gone on outside of academia. Like lots of things had actually happened. Um, and I think especially as, you, as, as a technologist gets older, you have to, there's going to be a, a temptation towards nostalgia and romanticizing one's youth and past and thinking that nothing interesting has been done um, or that all the problems have been solved. And I think all those temptations really need to be resisted. They're really, really dangerous. And they're because they, to young people in the discipline, they don't feel uplifting. They feel like you're slamming a door in their face. So I, I, Josh, am I reading too much into the polemic to Rob Pike's No, polemic? I mean, I think it's just, it's like a cranky person that's, I don't know, perpetually bumfuzzled that nobody has adopted his specific thing and ergo, like, the field is moribund. Like, all right, I guess I'll go back to bed. Like, yeah. okay. I, I mean, I think that's a little un unfair. So I've met Rob Pike a few times. I wouldn't say that I know him well, but I, I, I can say that he presents himself in a certain way that would lend to that interpretation, but that's not necessarily what he means. The way yeah, that I sort I, of interpreted yeah. the, the 2000 polemic was, hey, 
we're not doing stuff that people are interested in. We should, we should really think about what we're doing and we should start doing stuff that people are interested in. But I, I can totally see where it comes across as like, the world doesn't run plan nine. You're all stupid. I'm, I'm leaving, you know? And, well, and but I, also, I, I also, just also critically, like it, it, re, it's, it appeared to reject the value of incremental improvement, which honestly, like incrementalism is like, uh, it, it's the shoulders we all stand on when we ship things. Yeah, I, I think that's true. I, I also think it's a little bit, you know, I mean, like when we talk about systems research, right, and building whole systems, like there is a question of like, do we ever build a, a new whole system kind of from whole cloth? Or, you know, in Rob's case, or, or actually in Mothi's case, do we like spin the thread, you know, go shear the sheep and wash the stuff and cart it and then spin the thread and, and, and use that to create the cloth from which we, we build the new system. And I, I think it's fair to say that for the past, I don't know, 20 or 30 years, the answer very much has been no. And, you know, the industry and academia both have been very much dominated by Linux specifically, more generally sort of the Unix process model and system call model. So like the systems we have these days are very much in the Unix mold. And that's not necessarily a great thing. I mean, I don't think that's bad. I think that's great for shipping systems. But, I, you know, I, I, is there space to ask questions about, hey, do we want to change the process model? Hey, what would, what would it look like if we did different things with memory? Hey, you know, what if we wanted to do a real, system, a, a real single system image again? You know, we don't we don't ask those big questions. And I think that's kind of what Rob was saying. And, and to, to a lesser extent, I think that that's what Mothi was saying. Although Mothi's focus was almost exclusively on the hardware. He didn't, for example, call out like, you know, the Unix system call interface. He didn't he didn't uh, he didn't question at all whether that's a good fit for modern systems. And a lot of folks will claim that, no, it's not. Um, but he didn't, he didn't he didn't mention it at all. It just didn't come up. Well, so and, which I so I, I'll tell you that frankly, I kind of appreciate it because I think that the, the the problem that we've had is that we because we have settled on an application model that is is functional. Whether I mean that there are problems with it, I think there are there should be room for kind of radical rethinking. But as I think we've also seen over and over again that software takes a long time to build. We've built a lot of software on these extended abstractions. Josh, to your point about incrementalism, there are actually are a lot of good reasons to retain these abstractions. So we don't get into the, the, the kind of the software projects of the 90s where you spend you know, just a, a tons of resources on something that doesn't end up shipping because you're trying to solve every problem at once. What we what we have done, I feel, is because we have we have accepted some of that application model. We have at the same time said, okay, well, there's nothing to be done in the operating system. And what I what I loved about 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 Timothy Roscoe's keynote is like, actually, no, wait a minute, hold on, hold on, hold on. There's lots of problems to be done because while you've been dismissing the operating system as kind of done, there's all this stuff that's been congealing downstack to use his language, congealing underneath you that is really germane and you got and i think if anything i feel that he understates it he actually doesn't know he's even writer than he thinks he is in that and i think i do think that like one of the things that i would say is like a major uh it, a, a major point of clarification is one of the huge problems is the cores that he's talking about are too proprietary right now that the that the world he's talking about is not well known in part because 
for many microprocessors, that's only happening under NDA. And that is, and you don't even control the software on there. Like the, 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 the to put it in, you know, stuff that's very relevant to us at Oxide, but you can rephrase this in terms of any CPU, AMD PSP, the platform security processor, the source code to that is not open. You know, we, we don't, we, we, and we don't have the ability to run our own software on there. And that's a problem. So we, we, we can't see that world, which is part of the reason that the academics don't see it either. And that's true for a lot of the components of that broad architecture diagram that, that he puts out there, that, uh, of which you know, Linux occupies a tiny corner. But a lot of those pieces are proprietary and being built and designed in isolation. And so while I agree that he has a very hopeful message for academia, I feel less hopeful for the prospects in industry. Interesting. You know, like an observation that, I, that I've kind of made through the years is that industry and academia te- tend to leapfrog each other on a cadence of once every like 10 years or so in terms of who's doing the more interesting work. And I feel like we're actually in an extended stretch where industry has really been leading academia in, in a pretty serious way now for like 20, 25 years. And that really kind of started, I think, with the web. I mean, the web really caught ac- academics just completely flat-footed. And then it quickly became like the major application of the internet. And once that happened, there were all sorts of funky systems problems that just needed to be solved. And and like, you know, people pontificating about microkernels and, you know, new whatever it was that people in academia were talking about in like sort of the mid-80s. Like that stuff just became unimportant. And it was like, whatever, make Linux. You know, and, and yeah, and I, I would also say that Microsoft sucked the air out of the room as well. That the, the, the in the mid '90s, Microsoft is a foregone conclusion. OS research is effectively dead; it's been solved. Even Unix is like Unix is not interesting. That and but you're, to your point, Dan, all of the interesting problems now are distributed systems problems. Is circa the early 2000s. Yeah, or I mean, just more generally, it, it, like operating systems are are very interesting because artifacts of the operating system implementation tend to have really outsized impact on overall system performance, right? It's like, if you don't get buffering right in you know, the file system or something, like the networking stack, it doesn't matter if it's fast. Or you know, if, if there's a lot of jitter in your process scheduler and you don't get the algorithms correct, then you know, the hot pro- stuff that's in the hot path isn't, isn't running often enough. And so the you know, like, tail latency is widely variable at the 99th percentile and so on and so forth. Like those are real problems that where the where the OS has a direct impact, and people in industry really really care about that stuff, you know. And I think so. So Dan, I think that's a super interesting point, and I think that uh, because performance is one of those things that could be the driver of this holistic take on the system. Yeah. But but you know, one of the places that Mothi focuses on is security. Oh yeah. As the the low hanging fruit, and I totally yes. agree. Yeah. You know, I, I I absolutely agree that there is like a 10x improvement in security, and forgive me for for kind of diving to that nomenclature, but there, there's not performance. And um, and it, it, you know, I'm going to go on a slight tangent, but tell me if this if this resonates. Um, you know, I, I spent a lot of time in the the mid 2000s, uh, like 2010s, like thinking about SSDs, and thinking also th- this is ridiculous that we have this brand this this new. I mean, not that new, but we have this different kind of medium. That we was pretending desperately and 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 you know ex- uh, very challengingly pretending to be a spinning disk. Why was it pretending to be a spinning disk? Because everything expected it to be a spinning disk. Oh, yeah. And I, I you know I, I wrote this 
sort of naive article now in, in ACMQ about, you know, we should be building systems, you know, let, let's rethink that whole stack. And there are lots of folks that had that, op- had that opportunity and, and had that incentive. But I think the answer was there wasn't that much of a win there. Maybe you get like 10 or 20% better performance or longevity. But it, but it wasn't, it's sort of it not wasn't, enough. it wasn't 10 times faster or you didn't get 10, ton, 10 times that throughput into the disk by, that's right. by doing that's things. right. But, and, and I think the, 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 we, you know, it's not time for the epitaph on that idea, but I do wonder, you know, I, what, what I walked away thinking from Mothi's talk was what, what pushes that kind of, of thoughtful design of the operating system rather than the congealing of the operating system uh, well, yeah, and, but, and, and what, and what pushes past incremental. But, but Adam, I, like my question is, like define 10x, right? What, is, what does 10x performance mean? That doesn't sort of mean that your job is served 10 times faster. That may mean that you can make changes to the operating system 10 times faster. But when yeah. you find that there is a problem, and, you can hone in that, on it much quicker, you know? That, that might be where the um, some of these, uh, I guess, pathologies actually come from. Like, um, you know, he mentions your your baseband processor in your mobile phone that just memory maps everything. And, you know, that's major security problem, um, whatever. But, um, you know, I, for instance, have been looking at these um, ESP uh, microprocessors, microcontrollers. Um, I don't know if, if folks know these things, but they're these really cheap microcontrollers that are built in Wi-Fi. Um, and they are super popular because there is another core on the die that runs a, f- a firmware blob that handles all your network stack for you and uh, you know embedded programmer that wants to build cheap IoT device has an 80 command interface that blows my mind and you know why this is a new chip a new system it's commercially successful maybe it's just because you know easy always wins yeah, I think this is an, this is an interesting point. And I also, Adam, I think kind of the point you're making as well, I think that we over-enshrine performance a bit. Performance is not the only axis of a system. And I feel that the operating system, and I feel like even I actually went back and read the paper he referred to, his 2011 paper, and where they try to make the case for the operating system in terms of performance alone. And I feel that if you're trying to make the case for the, 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 the operating system strictly in terms of performance, it's kind of a losing argument because, and I think that we would also acknowledge that like, actually like memory protection does not make the system faster. We're not doing that to make the system faster. We're doing that to make the system more reliable. And I think Dan, to your point that the, a system that actually like that, that stays up, that, that allows for software to be be developed more quickly upon it, that allows, that is secure. I mean, these are, there are these other axes of the system that, I feel have honestly been kind of ignored or, or rather systems tend to be monomaniacal in their focus on one of these dimensions when in practice, what we actually need to do often is balance them. We performance, we, we can't give up any performance. We can't have an operating system that is going to cause you to sacrifice performance. It, that, that is, that's obviously also a losing bet, but we need to kind of break some of these false dichotomies, I feel, and deliver we actually need to deliver a balanced system that has these other properties, not just performance. Yeah. So I feel like the current challenges in operating systems will be very much focusing on, uh, well, actual security issues. So uh, we were just uh, talking briefly about web platforms. So on the web, we're 
starting to expose hardware directly, right? Like USB interfaces, for example, or Bluetooth, stuff like that, which can be very, very severe. And on the other hand, we are uh, coming up with new operating systems. I mean, Mothi himself acknowledged the uh, Harmony OS from Huawei. Uh, there is also Fuchsia. And I think that would be something that people should really jump onto these days. Yeah, I mean, I and you know, we talked a couple of weeks ago. We talked about Hubris, the one that we're working on at Oxide. So yeah, I agree with you. The people that there should be more new systems, and those systems are going to be smaller. And they, I think, they are going to be focused on one piece of the puzzle that he's got. Because I do feel that for the the, the other thing that that was a, that is merits clarification is when he's throwing up at the architecture and kind of circling, you know, where Linux is running, where that kind of traditional process model is running versus all of these other cores. That is not by area, heat, or draw. That is by, yeah. like, architecture, by blocks. Oh. Yeah. yeah, I mean, Lin Linux is, is chewing up the, the most dollars or, or whatever in terms of the components of the CPU. On every... The, I mean, components of the system, yeah. Right. That, that, that map definitely kind of reminded me of the election maps. That <laughs> yeah, some, right. Uh, that's right land don't vote right it's like yeah well land doesn't vote right and all those vast tracts of you know unpopulated area like that, that, that's great but like yeah we need to normalize for cpu cycles and applications and that kind of thing as well right and i and i kind of feel that like hey and then maybe this is where where you, you know i might, might disagree but I, I kind of feel like hey we should not I, I don't necessarily think you know he says that this kind of cc numa view of the world as a fiction it doesn't exist i'm like no it exists it's just that there's this other part of the world that also exists and is very important that and that's the part that has congealed that's the part that i think you know we can um you know whether and i also feel like we don't need to make anything coherent necessarily um i mean we're certainly not going to have a single system image span you know your you know your m4s and your eight you know your a35s or whatever on this soc i don't think right i don't well, i i, I kind of disagree with that on a in a couple different ways i mean i think part of the issue is that it, it is an illusion right i mean like we we, we have to acknowledge that it's like the, the the sort of view of the world that we want to take from the unix style operating system is the only thing that exists that matters is this set of like, you know, big x86 cores where we're actually like running processes and we're running the kernel and, and nothing else exists on the machine. And it's like, well, of course, that's not true. Right. Right. I mean, you know, like hard drives or whatever it is, like those things have firmware on them these days. And we need to acknowledge that. And, you know, like moreover, I remember when hybrid drives started coming out and you know, these are like SSDs compared like coupled with spinning rust. And there's like a caching layer with some DRAM in it. And I remember thinking to myself. How many like broken, buggy copies of the Linux kernel are shipping on your hard drive these days? Or, you know? or in your DIM. This is what they were oh, doing yeah. for Optane when they were, Intel was having still unspecified problems with Optane because they refused to tell you how it works. So it's hard for you to help them kind of diagnose their manufacturing problems. But for Optane DIMs, they would have them fronted by, by DRAM. And then you've got firmware in your DIM that is going to be syncing your, what you thought was DRAM. I mean, it's like, no, I don't want firmware in my Tim. Yeah, exactly. Like I want to be able to reach in and control that stuff. But more to the point, like where I think he was really kind of going with that point was like, look, hey, you know, because we want to continue to provide this useful fiction to Linux specifically, 
and you know more generally windows and other operating like for for all intents and purposes windows linux unix etc are all effectively the same system architecture as far as this talk was concerned right right meaning this sort of like view of the world yes they had different process models and threading models and memory management and so on and so forth but for all intents and purposes we can lump them into one category of system and what he's saying is effectively like because we want to continue to provide these programming illusions to those systems the, the firmware designers and so forth are going to continue to build things that uh, like assume this ossification of architecture. And so those, those lines become deeper and yet more entrenched at the same time. It's like the further we go down this path, the harder and harder it is to root those assumptions out of the system. Will we ever end up with a system that's like a single system image that spans like cortex M profile processors and, you know, I'm sure there's an 8051 float ground. And a modern <laughs> there's always software. an 8051. <laughs> You know, they, yeah, they're, they're like spiders. They're never more than like three feet away from the 8051. Yeah, but I mean, it's like, you know, no, we're not necessarily going to ship a single system image that includes the blobs that run on the Cortex cores and the blobs that run on the 8051 and the blobs that run on the x86 cores. But that's not necessarily what he's talking about. I think what he meant was like, hey, are we going to have an architecture where we acknowledge the existence of these other things? And we, and we architect systems so that maybe it's not the same image that's running, but these things are aware of each other and they're designed to, to coordinate and communicate with each other. Because right now that just doesn't exist. That does not exist. No, I totally agree. And this is where you get to like one thing I really wish he had called for, but I understand that this is a polemic towards Ausdy, not the industry. But we absolutely positively need open hardware and firmware in order to be able to collectively make progress in this problem. And I know that, I mean, obviously this is like talking Oxide's book, but one of the things that's been super frustrated with us, for us, is the degree to which these things are completely undocumented. We call them hidden cores. I mean, it's like the number of like, you know, you'll be in a meeting with a vendor, you're asking, are there any more hidden cores? Like we just found out about two more hidden cores in the course of this, you know, this this documentation dump or this meeting, like what- So you've got signed this letter, yeah, I know. And it's like we we need the, the hidden cores, and I, I do think, especially with the end of Moore's law, and more, which to me means that you're going to have more and more programmability in more and more spots. I mean, I think that we are. I see a world in which we we don't. A lot of these like weirdo components that we've got are actually replaced with M zeros sitting on an F, it's sitting on soft logic, right? If you give me an M zero and and soft logic. Like that thing can become, you know, a fan controller. That can become, I and mean, that can become all sorts of things that we need to actually build things. But like, we need that to be open and transparent. We need to do the software that is actually loaded on that stuff. We can't have this world in which it's totally opaque. Yeah, and yeah. that's what allows multiple components of the system to be designed and changed together. Because the reason we land in incrementalism is we ossify at some boundary. And then everything on one side of the boundary assumes that interface and everything on the other side assumes that interface as well. And it's very hard to change those things without doing it lockstep. And it's very hard to move in lockstep if it's two, you know, two companies that hate each other. Well, yeah, this is a very good point, Adam, because I think that the, the ossification is kind of coming out of the best intentions of, you know, the, you know, and I, I, I kind of, I blame Compaq for this, you know, in that blame slash credit, I guess. In, in terms of like trying to deliberately not vertically integrate a system to decouple software from hardware so you don't have to kind of constantly reinvent it. But then it has this, the, but now you have the congealing as a side effect of that. So yeah, that, that, that's kind of one of my pet peeves too, the 
I mean, the P the PC architecture was a great thing, but now the operating system vendors have abdicated any knowledge of the hardware. Just like, give us UEFI, and we don't care what happens below that. Yeah, Tom, this is a good point because the and then I feel that the and uh, you know John Masters is in here, so I can kind of pick on him. John yeah. feels that the, felt strongly that the ARM ecosystem needed to add UEFI. And I think a bunch of us are like, God, no, why would you? Well, no, you've got a beautiful garden. Like, you don't need to have, you know, a strip mine in it. You're not, you're not already in the hospital. Why would you come to <laughs> Right. Because, and it's, it, it's this idea, though, that Tom is referring to, that, that the, the, the OS doesn't want to have to change for my hardware, which is understandable. But it, then it leads to, to the, these layers that just feel like they're, they're impenetrable. Well, but that's, yeah, and, that's and how even without even without all these hidden cores, there's hidden crap going on on, on the important cores, right? The system oh, management yeah. mode yeah, and all common. these firmware calls and God knows what. It, it's really it's God, just yeah, a right. it's just a I mean it's uh, an industrial structural problem, right? I mean it, this is what commodification looks looks like. Um, yeah, we 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 need something like UEFI, but but. The OS guys should continue to own the hardware once the OS is up. Tom, what do you mean by that? What, what do you mean we need something like UEFI? I mean, what, is, what does that do that we, you know, like, like what, is, what is the function that's actually important there? Well, I'm, I'm actually, I actually like this ability to separate hardware and software. I mean, I think that that's an architectural point. That's a very good thing. So but, it's, uh, it's providing for, say, option ROMs and the ability to play things on the PCI box and all that stuff. Or? Yeah, and and you know, just it, it lets it, it. It's a it's a good interface for to allow innovation to happen on either side, right? But but the, for too long, the OS has totally ignored what's happening underneath that level. Right. Um, if I could uh, attempt to uh, defend the. Uh, the idea of adding UEFI to ARM. Now, I, <clears throat> I'm not, I'm not an expert on this, but as someone who has dabbled with the single, you know, the, the the ARM single board computers like the Raspberry Pi and the like, um, it it I I for one don't like every single board computer having its own patched non mainline kernel and its own patched U-boot. So standardizing on hardware interfaces in, in the ARM world as it is in the x86 world would seem to help with that situation. Like I say, though, I'm not an expert on that. So it's just my thought on that subject. Yeah, yeah no, I, I mean, in the PC world, you had Intel providing the ammunition, but IBM drove a specific architecture, which everyone adopted. And in the ARM world, you didn't have that IBM equivalent. Yeah, and, and Matt, what you're identifying is a fundamental tension for sure. I mean, I, I think you, you don't want to inflict, and, and Tom, to your point as well, that, that you, you do want to insulate software from hardware, but you don't want those layers to start operating across purposes. I mean, my, this is where my view comes to, and I get to, to, to you know, repeat from the songbook, I think that hardware needs to be open. If the um, Tom, you got a lot of white noise behind you there. Um, 
sorry. No worries. Um, the um, but uh, um, if the if the part of the problem is that everyone's got their own proprietary glop, and that they want they feel that they are either innovating or they're embarrassed. I think that's a well. Thing. I'm I mean, just so many of those blobs are rubbish. Like right, I mean, exactly. it, honestly, so, if 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 I had the manual and the source, and I could fix the fact that every time I tell this server, like now I want you to netboot, and sixty percent of the time it does. Like it's it's like if you could, I the the layering and the industrial structure and and the way these things slot together as as swappable components isn't really the problem. It's the fact that no one is. There, there, there is no yeah. version of some of these. There's nothing that slots into some of these slots that I can fix. It, 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 I, mean, I, th I think the, the idea of these interface layers is good, but that doesn't imply that you then just sort of wholesale adopt the UFI implementation or that UFI is the right solution there. I mean, there have been things that folks have done in the past, and, you know, I, like I know a lot of this audience is going to know this, but stuff like, I don't know, Open Boot or whatever, like, you know, it addressed many of these problems many years ago, or device trees or whatever. I mean, there are there are mechanisms to do this, but I think, and you know, kind of getting back to what most people are saying, a lot of it is that we've we've kind of said we've like declared by fiat that like okay, UFI is the solution, okay, Unix is the solution. We're not going to look at these problems anymore. There's no more. There's nothing. That, there's nothing left to be done, and I think that that's just categorically not true. Like there is a lot of work to be done here. And there's a lot of different reasons to do it. I mean, performance is one, obviously. Security is another. Just, you know, velocity and extendability. I mean, like, you know, try working in Linux sometimes. It's, it's, like, really hard to get stuff done there. That kernel is very dense, very impenetrable. Some of the code is very, very bad. Some's excellent. Some is not. When, going back to the academic problem, you know, one, one problem academics have is they just can't afford the the what it takes to do anything with hardware yeah and hardware is so integrated that it's nearly impossible anyway so tom that actually and you are hitting on one thing that i loved about this talk that i strongly believe which is let's build hardware and he has got at the end he's like you know we because it is i mean it is shockingly easy yes hardware is hard but the it is easier than ever before to build your own single board computer, especially yeah, low speed. Right, right. Yeah, yeah I, I think I made this point on Twitter that it, it, the whole FPGA scene now reminds me of the home computing scene of the 70s. So, Tom, and I'm so glad you referenced that because that to me was – so it, it, it bears repeating. Um, the it, So in terms of the – what you said in that tweet was that the what you're seeing around the open EDA scene – and KiCad and FPGAs and what's happening with like the ICE forties reminded you of the homebrew computing movement, right? So a lot, just a huge amount of enthusiasm and innovation and and people getting by with the crudest of tools, and people also helping one another out. I mean, I love FPGA Twitter is the best Twitter. I mean, it's it's a very just like supportive community. I feel, and you know, people are not. Yes, there are different technologies, but there's you don't see the rivalries that you see. I think in the ossified kind of tribes that we see elsewhere in the stack. 
I also think that, like, I mean, how many people would think that, and Tom, as someone who's kind of seen all of this, how many people today think, like, boy, if I could get in a time machine and go back to, like, you know, 19, the late 70s, it's like, well, you know, look around you and look around for the, the current analogs for that and, and, you know, get involved and make some hardware. I think that I love that kind of call to action. That's right, especially like as we look back at, at uh, you know, the early days of Next and in Windows NT, you do sort of have that moment of like, wow, what a, what a time to be alive. But like right now, when you've, when you've got folks milling their own PCBs in their basement with like a $200 piece of equipment uh, and, and, you know, colleagues of ours who are designing PCBs that show up like two weeks later uh, yeah. and, and are doing their own sort of like in a toaster oven, uh, you know, pick in place it's it's pretty awesome <laughs> is we had a colleague who went from ideation to board out for fabrication in 11 hours and that's a board that and again simple straightforward board but it's a board that's been super super useful and we've been able to go a lot faster by having that thing and that is that's amazing well wow. this is this is one of the reasons so like one thing i want to say about this and this i think actually again sort of bears on what most of saying is Systems have become so much more complex. Like one of the reasons that I'm like, wow, I wish I could have been alive in the PDP-11 era is because I could, you know, like, and I'm not trying to toot my own horn here. What I'm trying to highlight is the simplicity of that system. I could probably fit a good chunk of that into my head, you know? There are efforts, though, to develop uh, simpler systems, uh, some some of them based on, on FPGAs. Have any of you guys heard of the Precursor uh, project? No, tell us about on it. crowd supply. So it's <clears throat> it's it's a um, it's an FPGA based uh, SOC. It's uh, it's an FPGA based Risk Five SOC with some crypto accelerators in it. It's it's really designed oh, yeah. for for like security sensitive applications, and and it's in a mobile device form factor. So, um, but. Uh, Go ahead. And, and, that's, that, and he's that's developing totally cool. and, and they're developing their own OS for it. In, in Rust, in fact. Yes. <laughs> it's called uh, Zeus or something like that. Yes, X-O-U-S, Zeus. Oh. That, that, that stuff is cool, but that is not the X-O-U-S. same thing. X-O-U-S, X-O-U-S, right? why? No. <laughs> You'll be yeah. spelling that out for the rest of your life. <laughs> Um, yes. Sorry, Dan. I did. I was. I was still getting knocked back by the spelling of Zeus that they will be. Um... No, no, that, that, that's cool. I mean, but the thing about stuff like that is that that's that's just not the same thing, right? I mean, you know, like if I want to build a, a, a large scale server, that's a massive undertaking, even now. It, it, you know, it, it, and, and we see that at work, right? I mean. You know, like it's a, it's a daunting task. Oh, it's a, it, yeah, it is. yeah. You're 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 right. But I was I was kind of supporting the 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 point about for people who wish they could have been there for the homebrew computer club or whatever. Um, I mean, there 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 are effort or 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 for people who wish they could have been there at the time of the PDP eleven. Um, there are contemporary efforts to develop track, simpler track systems. So the, the conclusion of the statement that I was, that I was gonna, trying to make there, though, is that, Go you know, ahead. like the PDP-11 was, that was the top, that was like a very high-end machine for its time. Yeah, it was a mini computer. It wasn't a mainframe, but still, like that was a hot box, right? That was that was a very advanced Ah, uh, gotcha. Now, there, 
there are a lot of systems that I think, you know, like Arduinos kind of opened up this, this wonderful flowering of creativity and, and, and the hardware hacking side of things. And that's great. But I'm not going to like, you know, try to run a large scale organization off of an Arduino. Like that doesn't make it. So Dan, true, but but the 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 flotilla of of CPUs that and I think is only going to increase in number that surround that server, this stuff is actually pretty germane for, right? Yes, yes, but like when the when the academic folks are talking about building new systems, right? And that's you know again kind of going back to the focus of most of the talk. It's like why aren't we building new operating systems? It's like well, what are those operating systems going to do, right? It's like they're not going to replace Unix. The, the, and, and this is what Rob Pike said 20 years ago. The amount of engineering effort to produce a viable system is enormous these days in a way that it was not when Unix came around. So at the Unix 50th anniversary, uh -oh. the team, yeah, can you hear me? I, I can't. Yeah, you're back now. Oh, you're back now. Phew. Oh, God, I thought that was me. Oh, okay. I was convinced that was me. Uh, no, so what I, what I was, what I was going to say, and I'll try to keep it brief, but at, at ATC in 2019, some folks organized this event at the Living Computer Museum up in Seattle for Unix 50th anniversary. And I, I went up there. It was, it was a super cool event. I had a great time. There was a lot of, like, you know, old school Unix people there. And Marion uh, Horton That was a I great said, thing. Yeah, that was really cool. Marion Horton and I, though, we sat down in front of an emulated PDP-7 running version 0 Unix. And we tried to figure out how to write a B program. And eventually we came with like cat or something. But it was it was painful. Yeah. You know, I mean, like you, you look at this and you're like, and, and it, it was very interesting because you, you could kind of squint and you're like, oh, yes. Okay. I recognize this. Yes. Here's ED. Here's the shell. Like here's LS. This is, this is familiar. But at the same time, you're like, this was super, super primitive. I mean, this was not, you know, like a modern Unix system. And the amount of work that has gone into building modern Unix systems is something that, you know, if I was a grad student trying to do a PhD, I would not embark on something like that. You know? it's, a, it's a great point, Dan, because it feels like with some of these more novel areas where uh, Mothi observes that there's a lot more OSDI papers like ML, uh, there are contributions that can be made in the span of a PhD thesis. Of, you know, I can, I can work, grind on this for two, three, four, five years or 10 or however many and make some contribution is the same going to be true here because that that's also a uh it needs to be a guidepost as as optimistic as Mothi is most organizations most institutions uh the the work is going to be done for folks who are motivated in that way so i think that but there is contributions to be made because so much of the stuff that's important is low speed. So I do think that there's this, this very important distinction between high speed and low speed and the high speed parts of the system. And, you know, we're currently, you know, dealing with the, you know, the dim placement rules from AMD where we are dealing with like hundreds of femtoseconds. And like th that high speed part of the system is always going to be extremely expensive to engineer it's going to be really hard for academic academia to make contributions to the high-speed parts of the system. But to me, those low-speed bits, that flotilla that surrounds it, that's where the problems are all right now. And like, actually, academia can focus on it. Those actually are meaningful. You actually can pick up one of those things and actually make meaningful progress. RISC-V was an academic project, right? I mean, born as an academic project. Yeah. That's meaningful. Like, that is actually – are we going to use RISC-V for a host CPU? Not now. Um, I don't know if ever, honestly, 
Um, I, you know, I, I, I guess I'm, I'm still of the, and maybe this just makes me a, a POW of the ISO wars, but it makes me, I, it's hard for me to see anything other than x86, even ARM displacing x86. But I got to believe that 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 it's going to displace uh, uh, x86 at some point. Is risk five? It will. I mean, something will eventually. Maybe not in the next five years. But yeah, yeah, forever is a long time bet. Forever is a yeah. forever is a long time. It just. I'll take the under on that. <laughs> exactly. It, it it'll be both our, our heads will be in jars settling a bet. I do feel that like that is the way it ends with us: our heads in jars, <laughs> shouting at one another, trying to settle old bets in the year twenty eight hundred. I mean, me, uh, <laughs> me not being able to recall which position that I took. Adam, Adam pulling what insisting. Adam pulling what I have called eleventh all, where he 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 injects my past self with a position that I can't verify that I held or not, but is now clearly false. Uh, I mean, I. Of course, that's that's my version of events, Adam. That's not. That's probably accurate. <laughs> I what are we calling Steve Plavnik? I, the I, I can't even find the tweet where you know, it's actually it's it's referred to as gaslighting, uh, which I thought was very funny. That's <laughs> gaslighting. That's gaslighting, actually. That's great. Anyway, sorry. Um, the the but yeah, you're right. Forever is a long time, and you got to believe that this stuff is going to be displaced in time. But then it gets to be hard to see how. All right, so how do we get you know from where we are to a different spot? There, there's just no defined interface. If you want to change something, you have to conform to old interfaces, and we have seen over the last few years. And you're all older than me, so you will have older examples. Um, of times people tried to make something new, for example, SMR-based uh, device-managed SMR drives and use <laughs> new technology. But if you want to interface with a usual computer, you have to conform to the um, ossified structures that expect a disk with cylinders and blocks and uh, all these old interfaces. And if you want to change that, um, you have to go against all the other stuff that's uh, around, built around these interfaces. Okay, so that's, that's really hard. Yeah, no, yeah. That, 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 I don't believe that anymore. Yeah, okay. I, I, yeah, sorry. Well, 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 generally, to do anything useful, you, you have to be compatible. But yeah. with virtualization and emulation, there's a lot of different ways to do that. I think that's right. I think you, you got to be careful about how you do it. SMR is a really interesting object example. Um, the um, Adam, do you want to give your perspective on having watched the whole history of SMR? I feel uh, I'm dealing with an issue of the recording right now. All right, so, so, right, <laughs> okay, so let me I, I, let me uh, I'll proxy Adam here. You can correct me when I get this wrong. But so SMR is single magnetic recording and. It is basically the Marcus. I think there's a, a really interesting case that you pick up. It's like, why is SMR not ubiquitous? And so, uh, SMR is kind of the observation that, like, hey, if I can actually, um, if I know what, I, if I can delay writes effectively, if I can group writes together, and I can shingle them, I can get higher density. And the the problem is that if I the pathologies of getting that wrong are pretty steep. And the, I think the problem with SMR is that the win was just not a big enough win. It was like a 20, it was like a 15 to 20% win, which I feel was just like not enough. 
Adam? Yeah, I'm with, with totally with you. And uh, you mentioned Optane earlier, and it also didn't have that kind of economic niche to sit in, where it, it was, it sort of, it just didn't quite make sense, or, or there wasn't enough of an improvement to to justify the the cost. In Optane's case, it was the dollar cost. In SMR, it's the complexity cost, and and sort of the the long list of you know, pathologies that come along with it. If you're going to change the programming model, you, you do kind of have to blow the doors off on at least one axis, I think. I, that's right. right. I or, think, or, yeah. or, or, or you sell it to the cloud guys who can afford to spend a billion dollars to develop the software to squeeze the next 10% out of stuff. Although my read was I that... Feel that like, sorry, Jimmy, go ahead. I feel like that's exactly what happened with smart NICs. Um, you know, they, it, you know the, the business proposition there was uh, move some stuff off of your general purpose core onto this, you know, NIC, and, and then you have more compute. And uh, it comes at a, at a cost of a lot more complexity. And so you need that scale to say, oh, I'm going to put this in a fleet of 100,000 machines. So um, and, having, having worked on an offloads project where we tried to do exactly that, it does add complexity in some dimensions, but not all. And, and, and that actually, I think, like, this aggregation is probably going to be the future of systems architecture. And again, that's kind of what Mothi was driving at. It's like, we're already disaggregated. We just don't know it, right? But, like, if I can move, say, some of my management plane over to a NIC, good. Then I'm not burdening my application processors with, you know, basically system overhead. Function. And that's, that's a useful thing. It is useful, but, but Simeon's also right in that the extant SmartNIC abstractions, as made available to, say, the non-hyperscalers, do just introduce a lot more complexity. And I think this, I mean, getting back to kind of the, the, the thrust of the keynote, that we, we, there will be more disaggregation, there will be compute in more places, but what we can't do is try to make available the extant abstractions. We need to be comfortable yeah. taking apart some of the abstractions. And Josh, I think I love the way you phrased it about if you're going to change the programming models, there's got to be a real big win. So that's not going to mean that we're changing the programming model all the way up the stack. And I think that there's going to be, you know, there's a bunch of software that is going to need to continue to run even as we disaggregate, even as we get more cores in more spots. And then I also think the other rider I'd add on that is it's Jesus Christ, it's got to be open. When, the, when it's opaque, it, 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 we can't see how we're vulnerable. We can't see that how the system, what choices have been made. And so I, I feel that all of that stuff needs to be, needs to be open, open hardware and open software is really essential to get those, those things to, to have traction. Totally agree with all of that. I mean, like some of the complexities derive from the fact that the abstractions just are not in the right places. It's like, we, we, we say this stuff is incredibly complex because it is, why is it complex, right? This is the Feynman thing. Like we don't, we don't go to the next level of why in computer science. But if you say, why is this complex? It's like, well, because, you know, the operating system expects that it's the only thing running on the box and it's running Unix and you have to talk to it using system calls. But if the operating system understood that, hey, my control plane is actually running over on those cores over there, right? And, and I'm aware of them. Then now all of a sudden it can, it can account for that and you can simplify it that layer. Well, it, That's right. As opposed to having to tell these baroque lies to cover for the 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 fact that this uh, the, the the system was designed in one way is now operating in an environment that it was never designed for. It, it, and to I me, know. sorry, Maurice, go ahead. 
Um, but these um, baroque lights, as you call them, um, they're the result of a coordination problem. We don't get the coordination between all interested parties to make something, some new interface, but it's an incremental process. Someone comes up with um, yeah. this shingle magnetic drive and has to fit it in the existing abstraction in the existing interface. If you want to build a new machine uh, based on the ideas uh, of the talks, you will have to provide either everyone, you, your, your win has to be so big that uh, everyone or the people using it are interested in investing, or you will have to provide some interface like a hypervisor with virtio-based uh, interfaces so people can use your win with their exa existing technical not depth but infrastructure that's a good idea <laughs> yeah <laughs> so much yeah, that. But, yeah. sorry but, Tom, but, but this, the, this is why you know the Hayes command set is still buried in every device known to man also also <laughs> it's fantastic yeah. I mean come on I, I, that's right Josh will defend it to all comers <laughs> well, no, I I think you're right, and I I do, and I and actually, you know, it's funny because the, the, in some ways the greatest act of heresy that we're pulling at oxide is eliminating the AMI bias. We are not going to have an AMI bias. We're going to have all and, open and the AST twenty five hundred. You, you know, the AMI bias, the, uh, nuking the AST twenty five hundred from orbit is actually that one is a lot less controversial. Like literally, not having a bias. The, the microprocessor vendors themselves, and I mean both Intel and AMD, honestly, they, they act like we are, are climbing to the top of a skyscraper with wings made of flax and we're going to fly. I mean, they're just like, it won't work. It's like, what do you mean? Like, you don't know how to boot your own systems? I mean, it, 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 it's, I mean, they think that we're nuts for doing this. And to me, that should not be... I mean, that's a real problem that we have got a really thick layer of unseen software that is required to provide this legacy abstraction. Well, it's just to your point about this coordination problem. I think it's even worse than that because we've plopped these proprietary interests in there that are really operating across purposes, which, and that's like, that's the, I think the, the challenge that, we have as an industry. The fact that the, the BIOS vendor has to make a profit and it is not because they sold a CPU is, is a huge uh, perverse incentive. I mean, right? Like, if if the CPU vendor had to ship a BIOS because that's the only way they could figure out how to get, you know, an operating system to boot, that would be one thing. But they've uh, outsourced that or abdicated, if you will, that responsibility almost entirely. It, and and how, is it, how is it we got stuck with UEFI without getting rid of AMI? It, it, it is, it's, it's amazing, right? I mean, because, yeah, you would, that, Tom, so this is an interesting... So, yeah, would you expand on that? Because that's actually an interesting, interesting point. Well, I, yeah, I'm, I'm not really an expert, but, you know, when, when ARM announced they were doing UEFI, I was aghast because every experience I had with UEFI was bad. And and it didn't re seem to replace anything about the BIOS. It was all the bad stuff was still there, and you got UEFI. There's no pager in the shell, and it kills me every time. Every time. <laughs> <laughs> I just well, I just wanted yeah. to get that in there. It's like yeah. It, have you tried setting the baud rate to 300 and typing control F? Uh, you know, not 
precisely that sequence of things. Well, and, and then UFI has to clear the screen so that any embedded system where you're trying to figure out what's going on ahead of that, you, you can't see it anymore. But at least with UEFI, uh, some cloud providers at least uh, using UEFI VMs can boot faster because the bootloader doesn't have to bounce stuff through the lower 640K of RAM. I read that the other day. Yeah, but you, you but you could also just you could just stick an elf binary in the memory and jump to it as well. Like I mean, yeah, that's, exactly. <laughs> there are ways around that. UEFI <laughs> is is just letting us all into thinking that it's the only way to boot. There's we, we, there's a yeah, we need uh, to get Ron Ron Minnick on here. There was a, a Linux boot. There was a a Beehive port to OS ten called Xhive, and for the longest time they didn't ship firmware at all. They, like to, to run in the guest that they just had effectively like a multi-boot implementation um, that, yeah. that ran outside the hypervisor. It would just do what you were supposed to do uh, and put the, the bits that were going to boot into the RAM of the guest in the right place and then arrange for the CPU to look as if it had been through the bootloader already. I mean, that like doesn't actually have to be a ROM in there at all. <laughs> I now, mean, if we could just provide cool. an ELF binary when creating our, our uh, uh, EC2 machine images on AWS. Well, you, you can in many cases. I mean, you know, like if you're booting Linux, for example, like you can enter the operating system directly in 64-bit mode. Like the boot protocol is very well defined in that. Um, and I, I, I happen to know that there was a hypervisor written in the last couple of years that, that did exactly that in the first time that it booted a death OS. We as an industry can't rip out stuff. We have stacks, and uh, the usual metaphor for it is standing on the shoulders of giants. But it's <laughs> not. We are not standing on shoulders of each other as a very high stack. But it's a mesh. You're embedded in a mesh uh, of all the components you're using and the dependencies of these components. And trying to remove any of them. We have the example of the BIOS. You, you have every UEFI system, or almost every uh, system, includes a compatibility layer to BIOS. Um, I'm younger than the specification. <laughs> I'm not sure if, if there's any of the BIOS. And still, it's, it's going to be there for my entire career. And trying to remove remove stuff is so hard Where's because the you have to. <laughs> in, in, in its, def um, in its defense, the, the CSM on this, on this topic, um, there is an essay by uh, Graham Lee called "In the End, There Will Be the Command Line." Uh, obviously, a, a uh, an allusion to the Neil Stevenson classic, but uh, Graham Lee uh, compares the situation that we are just talking about here to a car that is started by horses, uh, which in turn are started by a human walking. <laughs> um, so yeah, <laughs> look it up. In and, and I'm I'm pretty sure it's called. And in the end, will be the command line or something like I mean, that. I, like that 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 I think is, is is very interesting. But like you know, part of the issue with when we talk about evolving these systems, and I think that. Josh actually mentioned a pretty amazing point earlier. It's like, if you want to change a computing paradigm, you've got to throw out some access somewhere. And the reality is that computing paradigms are changing all the time. 
look at the way that web development is done today compared to you know 1991 or whatever it's 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 fundamentally different in every dimension like some at some point those things change where we're getting stuck is that we make these assumptions that we perfect backward compatibility for all things yeah i think it, Dan, you're fading a bit there, but I, I, I think actually, and, and we were looking at the time, this great discussion. I know we want to try to keep these to roughly an hour, but I think that that, um, you know, it's a good note to kind of to to wrap up on that we are, you know, on the one hand, um, we need to be mindful of the abstractions. Josh, your earliest point about incrementalism, and there's there, there's a lot of value in incrementalism, but. On the other hand, when these layers become ossified and operate across purposes, um, it is uh, it's really problematic. And we've got there, there's we're living in a great time, Tom. I just again, I just love your line about how this this feels like the homebrew computing movement in terms of its excitement around open EDA, open firmware, and so on. So, I think that there's a lot of interesting and exciting problems to uh, to be solved. Obviously, it needs to be done carefully, but boy, there's a lot of room for improvement. And please God, can it all be open? With that. I think that would be my summary. Right on. All right. Um, hey, thank you so much, everyone. Um, really appreciate it as always. Um, and we will uh, we'll we'll see you next time. Thanks, Thanks everyone. Bye bye.